Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, as told in John 13, 1-17. We talk about the profound way Jesus' actions destabilize the social hierarchy, envisioning a community in which everyone honors and lifts up the other regardless of social status. We marvel at the idea that the Incarnation seems to have made God's relationship with humans more intimate, from God loving the world in John 3.16 to Jesus loving us as his own in this text. And we wrestle with the presence of Judas the betrayer at this intimate encounter. If Jesus chooses to wash even Judas's feet, what does that mean for the way we treat those we suspect of betraying us today? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? Hello, hello. I am still here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. It's raining here where I am today in Little Rock. And, you know, I just want to say that I really appreciate our friend Joel, who we call him our editor. He's sort of editor, sound engineer. He does all the things. And so on a day like today, when it's raining outside, my guess is there's probably going to be rain sounds in the background. Mm-hmm. There's always something there used mm-hmm. to be that dog next door to me that I would remember bark, that dog, the baby bark like once every five seconds for like an hour. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> it wasn't like he would bark and bark and bark. He's just like, ruff, ruff. He's <laughs> <laughs> keeping time. Ruff. Yeah. It's a poor Joel. And then last week there was a, like I live in the path of the trauma helicopter for the medical center at University of Arkansas. Uh-huh. And so last week there, there was a helicopter flying over in the middle of some discussion that we were having. And Joel's like, what on earth was happening? thought I was flying a drone. You live in the path of an airport? I know. I live, in the, I live in the path of a small airport. So I try to record from work. But, you know, at work, I can't just like turn off the HVAC system. Yeah. And, you know, so it's it's inevitable. The world makes its way into the podcast. It is. We do not live in a Bible-sealed vacuum, it is true. Yeah. So all of that by way of saying, first of all, thank you to Joel. Thank Second you of to all, Joel. Yes. <laughs> Second of all, it, there may be rain in the background of this episode, and I think it's kind of soothing. I think you, so. People turn you, on rain sounds on purpose, like artificial yeah, rain sounds. That's exactly right. you get right. them for free. All right, Amy. So today we are in John chapter 13 verses 1 to 17, which is quite a famous story in the Gospel of John of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. We were just last time in the story where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need to get into a whole ton of detail. There's kind of actually weirdly a lot that happens in the one chapter that's in between. Yeah. But if you were thinking about background that we might need to know to get us into this story, not necessarily to understand John as a yeah. as a whole, but to get us where we need to be today, what kind of background would you give us? 
I mean, I think the most essential piece of, of just like plot points, sort of what's happening here, is that Jesus was in Bethany and now has come back to Jerusalem. It's about to be Passover. So again, you know, one of these huge uh, pilgrimage festivals. So all the Jews are coming to Jerusalem and, and Jesus among them. And what we're going to read in chapter 13 is actually John's version of the Last Supper. That's right. Which I will tell you, not having known that beforehand, it's it's not what I imagined, I guess. Like the yeah. supper almost seemed, the supper part seemed a little incidental to the part yeah. of the text we read. But but this is it for John. This is the last supper Jesus has with his disciples. That's exactly right. And and so helpful. The um, This is the third Passover that we've seen in the Gospel of John. Mm. And so... The the span of Jesus's ministry in this gospel is at least, you know, two years plus mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. 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 Oftentimes it's just at three years for three Passovers. Yeah, right. That point that you're making about uh, this is the last supper, but the supper seems incidental, I think is really important. Jesus actually is crucified 24 hours earlier in the gospel of John than he is in the synoptics. So they never make it to the Passover meal. This is the mm. meal at the beginning of the day of the preparation for Passover. Whereas in the Synoptic Gospels, his last supper is this actual meal at the beginning celebration of Passover. So we're 24 hours earlier, mm-hmm. which changes the significance of the meal quite considerably. And we don't get the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine and the this is my body. We don't get any of that in John's Gospel. And I think it's important for us who are familiar with all of these texts to like, let John be John and don't import those in our heads. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing to say about that is that we're just in chapter 13 and this is the last night of Jesus's life. (laughs) So like a whole lot of the gospel of John deals with this last night and then with his crucifixion, resurrection, and then post-resurrection experiences, like almost half of the gospel. The last supper here actually lasts for five chapters from chapter 13 to chapter 17. It's often called the farewell discourse. Mm. And this is Jesus sort of laying out for his disciples, like here's what's important. It's a really beautiful text, kind of complicated, but beautiful. And I think we're only treating this chapter of the farewell discourse in the narrative lectionary. So listeners who are interested in sort of Jesus's last advice to his disciples, it'd be worth your time to go back and just read chapters 13 to 17. You kind of get the the main idea here in this text we're going to read, but there's a lot, you know, you think about that, like Jesus knows he's going to die. This is his last time with his disciples. He's got a lot on his mind. And so there is some urgency about what is being said here and what is being done here in this little section. Yeah. Yeah. So let's jump in. I'm going to start out by reading chapter 13 verses one to three. I'm reading in the common English Bible. Before the festival of Passover, Jesus knew that his time had come to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them fully. Jesus and his disciples were sharing the evening meal. The devil had already provoked Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Mm. In John's way, there is a whole lot of information and stage setting in those first three verses. I wanted to start out with this note that Jesus's time had come. Yeah. That seems familiar from earlier in the gospel. Where does that connect for you? 
I mean, it connects to me to these moments before when he had he keeps telling people it's not my it's not my time. Yeah. It's not time. And then in both cases we saw that man, I don't know if I should say begrudgingly, but he winds up, you know, acting in some way as he's been asked to act. Yeah. But he seems aware that it's not his time. And here he you know, quite the opposite. He's aware that it is his time. And one of the things that stood out to me was that there was nothing that happened, at least right here in this chapter, you know, that would, it wasn't, it doesn't seem like it was an external thing that made him aware. Like he wasn't watching cues from the world. It was more like uh, cues from not in the world. You know, it was uh, something outside of of what you and I might see if we were standing next to Jesus. We got that notice at the beginning of the text last time when Lazarus is sick and the disciples say, Jesus says, let's go. And they say, we can't because it's dangerous. You sh- if you go back to Judea, you're going to get mm-hmm. killed. Mm-hmm. So I do think there, there has been this sort of building tension in this gospel where you can sort of see that things are coming to a, to a point, you know? Yeah. And in the previous chapter, Jesus has come into Jerusalem and... Uh, yeah, but but you're right. Like, there's not a. There doesn't seem to be like a quite a motivating event exactly. It's just that the the dangers of of Jesus's ministry have come have come to a culmination. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, in this gospel, the reason that Jesus gets killed is because he raised Lazarus from the dead. In the other gospels, it's because he comes into the temple and destroys everything. But he did that way back at the beginning of his ministry in John's gospel. Here we find people are really nervous. If this guy can defeat the power of death, what else, you know, like this isn't going to be good. And so they decide to kill him because he can, like this is the tool that they have. It's sort of interesting sort of struggle around around death. I really love the end of verse one. I think I'm curious what your translation is. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them fully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What did you do with that verse? So I'm real. So my translation is slightly different. Yeah. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Yes, which I just think is is so beautiful. And I was really struck by the phrase by that he loved his own, yeah. and the question of who who that is exactly. Like, yeah. does and and I can for me the way that landed was you know thinking about the last time you and I talked. We talked about. Jesus having this really deeply human experience, you know, before having the really deeply godly experience of raising someone from the dead, he has the really deeply human experience of grieving someone, being surrounded by grief that comes with death. And so I, I, I don't know, I, like after that moment, I just felt more of this humanity of Jesus. Yeah. And so saying love, he loved his own makes me think he, he loved humans. Yeah. You know, and it it really made me think like there's I don't know, it made me see differently how there's a reason that things had to play out this way with this like God human, you yeah. know, like the kind of the kind oh, of I love see. that comes when it's when it's your own like your own species, your yeah. own. Yeah. Did you think? Do you think that that he's think he's this is a reference to humanity here, or do you think it's a more narrow reference to like he loved? the people who followed him? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I was, I'm was i a little surprised where you went with that. I was thinking you were going to go the other direction. 
But mm-hmm. I love where I love where you went. We we've talked a couple times along the way. There's been references to you know who is in Jesus's sheep pen mm-hmm. <laughs> from chapter ten and various sort of ideas, various claims that Jesus has. He's not going to lose any of those who've been given to him. And we've sort of said like, who are those people? And there's an expansive reading of it, and there's a narrow yeah. reading of it. Yeah. I really like the expansive reading of it. I really appreciate where you went with it. It reminds me of John 3.16, for God so loved the world mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. God entered into the world in love, not to judge, but to reconcile. There, there is some complication because people do seem to get judged in this gospel, mm-hmm. but the love is extended broadly. I really, really love what you added there about the incarnation changing the nature of that love or amplifying because God loved something other than God, right? God loved the world. Mm-hmm. But Jesus, now having become human, mm-hmm. loves what is his. I I love that. I've never put put that quite so so well for myself. I think you just put it better than I did, but <laughs> <laughs> that's one that's of my great thing. talents. A good team. <laughs> saying something that you said over again. <laughs> that's like eighty percent of my stuff. Yeah. Now you noted that your translation was he loved them to the end. Mm-hmm. My translation, he loved them fully. Mm-hmm. The Greek word that's used there is telos, mm. which can mean either one of those mm. things, right? Yeah. It can mean like an end of something or it can mean the fulfillment of something. Yeah. And so I'm just curious if you take our two translations as kind of the possibilities, the Greek does not decide between them. These are two totally legitimate translations. Do you sense a difference about love them to the end, love them fully? Does, does one or the other of those speak more to you? You know, before you just added that bit about what the Greek word was and a little bit of the different resonances of it, I liked my translation. He loved them to the end, like mm-hmm. to his to his last breath, to every moment that he could love, which I guess gets complicated when you're going to be resurrected, but we'll put that aside for now. Yeah. But I really... Hearing your translation makes me think sort of of the <laughs> the way we say to our kids, like, I love you to the moon. Like I love yeah. you to the to the to the biggest, big, unimaginably full yeah. level. Which is a real I don't know. It's it's a little less concrete. And I guess I was sort of enjoying the concrete yeah. creatureliness of Jesus previously, but I but I think I like I think I like your translation better. <laughs> that's interesting because I like your translation. You're like, better. tell me about, tell me yeah. about why you like my translation. I just think that's so so beautiful. Maybe I like the concept of this translation, but I love that he loved them to the end. Just like, I mean, because you would also say that to your kids too, right? Like, <laughs> like yeah. I will love you, like with my last breath, I will be yeah. loving yeah. you. Yeah. In the way that we do, if you take both of those meanings and put them yeah. together, then what it says is he loved them completely and without end, or mm-hmm. completely and until the very end, last moment, which is be- like those two concepts together are, are truly beautiful. Yeah. He loved them fully. I think I just don't love the, the poetry. I think that it's not poetic. You're right. It yeah. just, uh, yeah, that's not a poetic translation. If If we wanted to get to that idea of like, the tremendous, unending, boundless magnitude, you know, that then the word fully doesn't quite get you there. Yeah. Okay, so then we get a notice that Jesus and his disciples were sharing the evening meal. This is the evening meal. You know, I mean, 
I don't know if our listeners are aware. I know that you are fully aware that the in the Jewish accounting of the calendar, days begin at mm-hmm. sunset. In the evening, yeah. And so the evening meal is the beginning of the day that goes mm-hmm. to the next evening meal. Mm-hmm. So in, if we're keeping time, this is the beginning of the day of preparation for Passover. Mm-hmm. So like is that there- night, Passover, the next, the night after this dinner, it will be Passover. 24 hours later, when they yeah. have their next dinner, which they yeah. never get to have in this gospel, yeah. it will be Passover. Yeah. So this this in the Jewish world is the dinner where you try to eat every bread item in your house because you have to have it all <laughs> yeah. out. So it's like carb, carb-loading dinner. They're carb-loading. I was curious. That's funny. I was going to ask you if there's any significance to this, but that's not what I thought the significance. That's not what you, yeah, it's very yeah. practical. You have to yeah. eat, eat it or get rid of it. Because you're not allowed to have any yeast in your house during the Passover. Yeah, you're not supposed to have it in your house. Mm-mm. Do you remember that time you sold me <laughs> all the yeast items in your house? I did. And then you wanted to buy yeah. them back from me. And I was like, no. So then you just took like, them anyway. It's, it's a very common thing in the Jewish community. If you have items that you can't, you can't eat at all, you don't want to waste it. So you you transfer ownership to oh, someone. Yeah, you didn't sell it to me. You just gave it to me. Yeah. Right. You transfer ownership, but then it's just sort of understood that they're going to give it back to you after the <laughs> Passover. Like, hey. And you were like, what? That's for all the yeast. That was funny. So you just ate it. I, I still have, I still feel like you, maybe you owe me for that, but all anyway. Right, I'll, I'll work on my repayment. I'll, It'll get I'll sorted owe out you the until the time. fullness of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe the fact that you just agreed to do Bible work with me for years on end is probably more than repayment for that. <laughs> so they're gathered for the evening meal. We're not yet quite to Passover. Maybe they're eating a lot of bread, although you actually don't get very much about what they've eaten here. Mm-hmm. What I was going to say is this is really not, this meal isn't really, a, it's just a meal. Like, yeah, right. Yep. It's like the meal you eat on December 23rd or on like yeah. the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Like, Yeah, it's just a meal. Yeah. So the, the text says, that, at least the CEB, the devil had already provoked Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray Jesus. I'm just curious what the NRSV has there. This uh, similar. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray mm-hmm. him. So first, just let me ask you, like when you're, you know, we're setting the stage for this, what's coming, you know, it's Jesus's time. And then you get that notice Yeah. as part of the background of this text. Any thoughts about that introduction, the significance of that being part of this story? I mean, I will, gosh, I guess I could say a couple things. The, the first thing, well, I mean, I think there are a lot of aspects already just in these three verses that are kind of foreboding, (laughs) You know, yes. like Jesus has already said, you know, that he knows that it's his time to depart the world. And so it's not like the reader doesn't know. Even if you don't know how this is all going to play out, you know, <laughs> you do know because, you know, the, the text is leading you there. When I first read the introduction of the devil, yeah, I, I, I was wondering sort of how— how that plays into, you know, our our thinking about Judas, and you yeah. know, I'm not super familiar with the devil. Judaism doesn't really talk about devilly creatures very much. So I first thought, like, uh, you know, is Judas just a pawn, just like you know, being used by the devil? 
And then my the footnote in my study Bible, which is the Jewish Annotated New Testament, pointed me back to chapter 8, verses 42 to 45, where, where Jesus basically said to some folks who were not believers in him, if God were your father, you'd believe me. But since you don't believe me, your father must be the devil. Like it was pretty harsh. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty harsh. Yeah, so so I, I don't know. I have a lot of a lot of feelings about that that I don't I don't know that if we should go into because this is just sort of an aside here. But I think that's an important thing to note that this is not the devil put it in his head, and so it wasn't really Judas's fault. It was yeah. Judas was already a, a follower of the devil, basically. Yeah, and so and so Judas is not innocent in here. No, I think that's important, and I mean, we can. S- I mean, I'm really interested in what you might want to say about that because, you know, it is kind of an aside here, but also things like that do work in the world, even when they're asides. And if we don't sort of question them or like think about the implications of them. So is, is there anything you'd want to add about the, like, I, I know where I think you're headed with that, but can you kind of connect those dots? I mean, that way of responding when someone doesn't, I mean, it reminds me of the discourse we saw last time when the Pharisees didn't believe the man who had received sight late in his life, and they didn't want to believe what he said, and so they just said, "Well, you were born in sin, yeah." So I'm not gonna. So I therefore I'm not gonna engage with what you're saying. And I feel like it's the same thing to say, like, "Well, if you don't believe me, oh well, then your father's the devil." Like, yeah. And I understand from the perspective of someone who believes that Jesus is God that. It's different. Like, God can say that. <laughs> yeah. But from the perspective of someone who doesn't believe that Jesus is God, like, that's, that's, I mean, there's nothing to do with that. Like, if someone just dismisses dismisses you as evil for not believing whatever they're selling, then. Yeah. It's the, it's this, I feel like it's the same thing that I, that we gave the Pharisees a hard time for in our last reading. Yeah. That's really well said. And that connection is is really important. It's just an easy way of dismissing the positions of people that you disagree with and sort of, I mean, literally in this case, demonizing them. Yeah. We've seen in the Gospel of John various places, and I'm thinking back again to our Ash Wednesday episode with the, you know, there's the shepherd who's trying to lead the sheep out, but there are also thieves and crooks and hired Mm -hmm. hands who are leading shepherds out or leading the sheep out. And there is a sense in the Gospel of John that there are multiple ways there are multiple people you could follow, mm-hmm. and one of them is Jesus, and the others are deceivers mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. or another. And you know, Satan is the great deceiver, and so I, like that seems to be a claim here is that when you encounter the voice of the shepherd, if you will follow him, but you might also be deceived. And so, if you oppose the shepherd, if you oppose Jesus, then you have been deceived. And in that sense, you're a child of Satan. I don't, I don't know if it means necessarily that you're sort of like ontologically or biologically like mm-hmm. somehow a child of Satan, but certainly that you have given your loyalties to a deceiver. Mm-hmm. 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 They've been deceived. And like you can hear that logic all around us in various ways today, too. But you're right, it is a it is kind of a dangerous I mean it is a dangerous way of thinking about the world. 
One of the interesting things to me is that in the Greek, the Greek is actually a little bit ambiguous. It says something like the devil had already put it in his heart that Simon Iscariot would betray Jesus. Mm. And there's some ambiguity about whose heart actually is at stake there. Yeah. So my translation and yours too, both tried to clarify like this, the devil made Simon or sorry, made Judas Simon, Simon. the devil made, (laughs) (laughs) the devil made Judas do this thing. I mean, the devil does make Judas do this thing, but somehow there's a different inflection when you say, the devil put it into his own heart. Like, I have made up my mind that Judas is going to be the one who does this thing. Feels different somehow than to say, I'm going to put it in your heart, Judas, that you're the one who's going to do it. This question of how culpable is Judas, I think, is an interesting one. And it, and it changes a little bit depending on how you translate and how you think about these other issues. Okay, I just have to say quickly, because I think this is the wrong understanding, but it's so interesting that... The, the ambiguity of the Greek there, when you first read the literal translation, I thought the devil had put it in Jesus's heart oh. that Judas was going to do this. Interesting. And then I just started thinking about how when, when we get ideas in our head about what someone else is going to do, how that, how that shapes what actually happens, even if, yeah. yeah. I love ambiguity, Bobby. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, I think what you're saying there is important because I do think Jesus does know whether it happens right here or not. Jesus knows who's going to betray him. And so then the the role of Judas in this text becomes kind of interesting, like, because then there's this question of how do you treat your betrayer, who you know is going to be your betrayer. A little later in the text, in verse 21, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And then his disciples are all like, oh my goodness, is it me? So there's this interesting dynamic in this text where Jesus knows, maybe Mm -hmm. Judas knows, but the disciples are actually not sure that they're not the ones. Right. So what you then you what you end up with is a sort of a meal full of people (laughs) who are not sure how like how committed they are to this thing. It's that's a text for another day, um, but it's a fascinating, fascinating dynamic. Then the last bit in this introduction is that Jesus knew the Father had given everything into His hands. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So Jesus knew like there is where he came from. He knew where he was about to go. Mm-hmm. I'm struck by that phrase, had given everything into his hands. Yeah. What do you do with that? I was really struck by it too, because we've heard along the way in the gospel that Jesus is there to do the will of the one who sent him. We also heard more recently or sort of got the idea that God does what Jesus asks. This seems different to me mm-hmm. that everything has been given into his hands. I honest, I I am not sure how to wrap my head around that. How do you wrap your head around it? Well, to me, the plain sense reading of it is everything belongs to Jesus. Yeah. And we saw that all the way back in the prologue that nothing came into being except through him. And then we've seen these various statements that Jesus is not going to lose anything of that which has been given to him. And so if you put those two statements together, he's not going to lose anything of what's been given to him and everything has been given to him. Then related to our earlier conversation, when Jesus comes to what is his own, you get the sense that Jesus came for everything. Not maybe even not just humans, but like the fulfillment of time and all of 
creation, including humans, has been given to Jesus. In my mind, you get a really expansive view then of like what Jesus's mission is and who who is wrapped up in this kind of love that God has extended toward the world in Jesus. What you do with that in light of what we were just saying about Satan is active in this text too, yeah. I don't really know. And, and I don't know what you do with that in the world either, honestly. But to me, this is very much opening this possibility of Jesus is coming to the world in love, not, not to part of the world. Yeah. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking back to these more sort of seemingly mystical moments in the text that are maybe not not so much telling us a story and giving us a plot, but the more poetic parts that make me want to draw pictures and yeah. you know try to try to wrap my head around what's happening in that way. And I th- I'm glad you raised those again because I think I had sort of moved into this idea of that, that was much less mystical, much more sort of mm, tactical. That's a yeah. terrible word, but yeah, it's. It's it's both. I have to, yeah, mm-hmm. to bring all that. God is the word. I mean, Jesus is the word. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the shepherd. That's a lot of things. Jesus is the things, yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Reverend Joanna Herriter, pastor of Peace Mennonite Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Last year was my first year preaching through the narrative lectionary. And Bible Worm quickly became my first and usually most significant Bible study tool each week. I love the lighthearted yet in-depth textual analysis and the attention to issues of social justice. Sometimes I just want to take Amy and Bobby's closing thoughts and offer that as my sermon. But I don't, I promise. This year I decided to support Bible Worm financially and join their Patreon at the basic $4 a month level. If you're one of those responsible preachers who starts sermon prep more than five days before the sermon, you can support at a slightly higher level to get early access to the content. Just go to patreon.com slash Podcast. Let's all do our little bit to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this valuable resource. And now back to this week's podcast. Okay, so we've lingered for a while on the introduction to this text, but I think it's an important lingering because there's a this is a weighted text, and I think it we've is gotten a some heavy preamble to mm-hmm. what to the the action that's about to happen. Yeah. So I'm just going to read very briefly the general action before we get to Peter, mm-hmm. just in verses four and five. So Jesus got up from the table and took off his robes, picking up a linen towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he was wearing. So I just want to pause there before we get into sort of Peter and Jesus' dialogue, just to get, get a sense of the scene. And the washing of feet is something we have not really seen. And it's something that doesn't really happen. The only time I know anyone who's ever washed anyone's feet, other than like their kids or whatever, is at a church service that's reading this text. Yeah. So, like, it's hard to connect it to the significance outside of the the ritual. Yeah. But this isn't really a ritual act, is it? What What do you do? Like, what is the significance of foot washing, do you think? I mean, the way that it sort of, I don't know, resonates for me, the way that I think about it is to try to imagine – a world, imagine the world where 
there's no way to get around really, but by foot, yeah. maybe occasionally you can ride a donkey, but mostly you're by foot. You may not have shoes or you may have sandals that are very simple. Yeah. Your feet take quite a beating yeah. during the day. And it's a ve- it seems to me like a very intimate thing for yeah. someone to wash someone else's feet. They have to be, you know, it's, it's not like a pleasant sensory experience to wash someone else's yeah. feet. I almost wonder if we should bring in that. I mean, I guess it's not a foot massage. They're, they're not getting like a pedicure from Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it seems to me like really a, a way to deeply honor someone in the most yeah. basic shared humanity. Like you're not honoring them for something really grand. You're honoring them for some very simple aspect of what it is to be human at that time. And it's a, it's a, an act of humility to wash someone else's feet. That's what I've got. Can you add anything to that? Oh, and I love that, Amy. And like, I've been pondering this, the Jesus pedicure thing, because actually I think that might have opened up with some possibilities. Like I struggle to connect this with the modern world. Like what is the parallel in the modern world to what is happening here? And I actually think that's a pretty, pretty good one. Like the feet are vulnerable. They're tired. They're Mm -hmm. dirty. Here's a chance to be refreshed in a way that we don't often think about being refreshed, but they're, but pedicures are along those lines. Mm -hmm. And then the kind of connection and then, you know, the social status of people typically who give pedicures are, is probably lower than the people who they are giving Mm -hmm. pedicures to. Mm-hmm. So that is, kept, captures a lot, I think, here. One of the things I love about the way you interpreted it is there's both a very practical thing going on here, right? Like mm-hmm. your feet are dirty. You're, you're getting ready to have a meal. Even if you took a bath right before you came over, your feet are mm-hmm. going to be dirty in the way that your hands are dirty. And so just if you're going to share a meal together, you need to be washed. Mm-hmm. But then also the sort of the tenderness of it and the intimacy of it. I think that is here too. And normally, of course, if you were the host of the dinner, you would invite your guests to have their feet washed, right? So you would say, here, I'm going to have your, f- have someone wash your feet for you. So it's an act of hospitality on the part of the host. Mm. But the host would not be the one doing the washing. It would be the servant or the slave who had a lower social status. Mm-hmm. And so if you came to my house... You know, I would get to be the generous person who has your feet washed, but somebody of a lower social standing than me would be the one who actually washed them. And so those dynamics are here. There is also a way of reading that I'm sort of curious what you think. You, you can read this in terms of ritual purification, uh, that in the way that one washes one's hands, I think if you were a priest who wanted to enter the Holy of Holies, you, you were also to wash mm, your feet. That's interesting. Because those are the two parts that are exposed, you know, and, and need to be extra clean. Yeah. That, I mean, that extra layer really makes it more complex because it would, if, if we think about it in comparison to the Holy of Holies, then, I mean, it is Jesus that makes the space the Holy of Holies. Yeah. So it is the source of the holiness that is yes. also the, the humble washer of feet, which is... Yeah which is something really different. Like, is, 
is something really different than how we would imagine these things fitting together. So if you were to say one's feet need to be clean in order to enter into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and then we've seen a number of texts in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, look, now I am the present, like I am mm-hmm. the Holy of Holies. Mm-hmm. You don't need the Holy of Holies that's in the temple anymore because it has come into your midst. But in order to be in my presence, you need to have your feet clean. Mm. And I'm the one who's going to do that for you. Mm-hmm. That adds a whole new layer of like, what does it mean to be in the presence of the holiness of God? Mm-hmm. Jesus, God incarnate, is the one who makes it possible by doing this action. Mm-hmm. I don't know how far to push the ritual significance of it, but I think it opens up an interesting layer that you often don't hear talked about in this text with this text. Yeah, no, it I mean it really does and I think it also to my mind elevates the you know, we spoke before about how time time is its own thing, you know, it's and and Jesus knows that it's about it's just about his time just because it is. <laughs> and at least in the Jewish tradition, like certain times have an inherent holiness about Mm -hmm. them. So, you know, whereas the disciples have been in Jesus's presence plenty, and we might say the nature of Jesus hasn't changed over the course of his life, choosing to wash their feet now and thinking of it as their being in the presence of holiness, it almost, it feels like that whatever sense of holiness we had is being magnified because of the impending holy time. Yes. That we're coming into. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's lovely. Okay, so Peter has a very strong response to what is happening, as Peter often does in the <laughs> Gospels, picking up in verse 6. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand later. No, Peter said, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't have a place with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus responded, those who have bathed need only to have their feet washed because they are completely clean. You disciples are clean, but not every one of you. He knew who would betray him. That's why he said, not every one of you is clean. Can I just ask a clarifying question? Yeah, yeah. Is Simon Peter the same as Peter? Yes. Okay. If you remember all the way, all the way back to chapter one, Simon showed up to Jesus and Jesus is like, I think I'm going to call you Peter. <laughs> Do you remember that? He just <laughs> yeah. like names him like, yeah. It's more profound, the renaming in some of the other gospels. But in John, he's just like, oh, you look like a Peter to me. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to call you Pete. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be good. Mm-hmm. So Simon Peter, sometimes he's called Simon, sometimes he's called Peter, sometimes he's called Simon Peter. But yeah, it's that guy, that one of the main disciples. So what do you take of Simon Peter's objection like, why do you think he's, like, when, when you're trying to read the motivations of the characters, why is he so, you're going to wash my feet? I mean, I guess I I read it as he assumes that this is, that there is, you know, sort of a class system in play here. And Jesus is their teacher and their leader and their honored one. And so they should be washing Jesus's feet. Jesus shouldn't yeah. be washing their feet. And so he he sees it as a, you know, sort of like a debasement for Jesus to yeah. to do this. I think that's exactly right. So you have to sort of get in the head. I mean, it's not actually that hard to get in the head of, but in a highly structured society where there is honor and shame and who is more honored than whom and all the social roles play out that way. Simon Peter is clearly acknowledging that he is on a lower rung than Jesus. And therefore, Mm -hmm. if anybody's washing anybody's feet, 
he should be washing Jesus's and not and not vice versa. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, "Unless I wash you, you won't have a place with me." That seems harsh. Yeah. Why? You didn't ask the question fast enough, so now I get to ask you. <laughs> My face was asking the question. What? You can't see the face on the <laughs> no, podcast. Listeners can't see the face. <laughs> I mean, why? Well, I don't know why. Does is it that is he saying that that Peter has to be willing to accept that this sort of structured social order? is meaningless or he must be willing to turn it on its head in order to have, like, is that in order to be a part of Jesus's, you know, kingdom for lack, I don't know, that's not really a phrase, but you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that Peter has to let go of the expectation that honor looks a certain way. That was beautiful. Yeah. No, I love, I love that. I love how you got into that by saying, I don't know the answer to what to do with this. So I'm going to, I'm going to, anyway. I'm going to ask you and then answer my own question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, no, I, I I love that way of reading it. I think that's a terrific way to read it. That's kind of my favorite reading of it. Unless you understand that the hierarchies by which human culture, human life is structured are meaningless in my community. You can't be a part of this thing. And the only way you can demonstrate that you understand that is to let me who is more important than you, mm-hmm, by the mm-hmm, way, mm-hmm. wash your feet. I think that's a great reading. It's so, I mean, it's interesting, but it almost is more sort of like holding up a mirror to me because I'm thinking back to, you know, that a text that we didn't read, but where where Jesus's feet are cared for by Mary, maybe? Martha, yeah. one of, you know. Mary, and, just in the previous chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and there's this sort of question about whether they should really be using such nice, you know, oil, yeah. nice perfumes mm-hmm. and doing this when they could use it to feed the poor. And and Jesus says, like, no, you should. You should be yeah. using this on me. I'm only yeah. going to be here for a hot <laughs> second. And yeah. this you should be honoring me this way. Yeah. So it's not that you should, it's not that you shouldn't honor Jesus in this way. It's that it's not so rigid. Now that's such an important clarification, Amy, I really appreciate that because Jesus is certainly not saying that he is not an honorable person. Right, right. And so it is perfectly appropriate for you to wash Jesus's feet as Mary has anointed Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And also you, Peter, or whoever you are, are a person of honor. And it is appropriate that even the one you honor should also honor you in that way. So it's not an either or, it's everyone has honor and therefore we demonstrate one of the things that the Bible Worm Collaborative talked about when we discussed this text was that even today, people would much rather wash someone else's feet, at least in the context mm. of church worship services. Mm-hmm. Maybe this doesn't work with the pedicure analogy, but mm-hmm. people would rather wash someone else's feet than have their feet washed. Mm-hmm. And it is an interesting thing about people feel some hesitancy about being the recipient of someone else's offer of service. Yeah. We want to serve people, not be served by people. When even when, even as I'm saying it, I'm saying like that's not exactly how that works, but there's a you know vulnerability about it. Like there's yeah. a Yeah, no you're right and it is interesting that it d- really does not carry into the world of pedicures because I'm sure that some of the same folks who don't want to have their feet washed in church are perfectly comfortable going to get a pedicure, but often there there is a 
there, there's, you know, an exchange of money or there's something yeah. that sort of cues you that this is, it's, it's, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay for it to happen in this context. That, that is, that's really interesting. This is a loose parallel, but one of the things that's coming to my mind is at Mercy Church, we will do things like have a dinner where people who are homeless and people who are housed eat together. Yeah. And almost invariably when we do that, the meal is cooked by people who are homeless. The meal is served by people who are homeless. Mm. And so the hospitality is being extended by people who are homeless. And for the most part, that makes housed people really uncomfortable. Yeah. They want to come into that setting and serve. Yeah. When you say, no, come into this setting and let us serve you, then there's some kind of weird thing that happens. I don't quite, and I mean, it happened to me too. So yeah. I, I, I don't mean to put it off on, like I've, I have learned to embrace it over time, but the first time at Mercy, the original Mercy Church in Atlanta with Chad Hyatt and I came in and they did that and I was like, oh, like, no, like I can make the sandwiches, <laughs> right? But I can't be given a sandwich. Like what's, I don't get that. I mean, there's a real power dynamic with mm-hmm. the ability to give, Yeah, you know? And so sometimes, yeah, receiving feels like, it feels shaming in some way because yeah. it feels like you you should have power and you should have the power to be generous. You know, generosity can be an expression of power. It, it yeah. gets all tied up together. Yeah. I'm sure not in, in Jesus's iteration of it, but in our crazy world, it does. Yeah. I think the point, like, I don't know, the specifics are a little hard to pin down, but Jesus has mixed the social ex- expectations here, as you were saying. Yeah. And it has created this whole world of anxieties <laughs> because yeah. we're used to it. Like, exactly what the dynamics are, maybe not clear, but the sort of concept that mm-hmm. there are social scripts by which we move. Yeah. And when you mix those things up, which Jesus has done here, it throws off everybody's understanding. Yeah. Now, Simon's or Peter's response then is, then wash my whole, <laughs> like wash my whole body. <laughs> it's not my feet, but also my hands and my head. So He's all in now. And Jesus yeah. also corrects him there, which I feel kind of bad for Simon because he got corrected on the one end and then he got corrected back again. Jesus says, if you've already bathed, you don't need to bathe again. You just need to have your feet cleaned. That's a very mysterious saying that Jesus has said there. Do you have ways of making sense of it? Um, not really. <laughs> I mean, I was... You know, one who has bathed does not need to wash. I, I like it. Is there a ref? There's not a reference to baptism, is there? Some people read a reference to baptism there. If you're already baptized, then you need to accept this other thing, whatever it is, like that that Jesus serves you in some way, and that's what you need. I don't necessarily know that that's the only or, or even the best interpretation. It seems a little yeah. like like you're importing an idea that's not. Actually, yeah. yeah, here, yeah. But if you if you get rid of that one, if or don't get rid of it, but bracket it for the moment, like what are you left with? I I really don't know. It unless Jesus is distinguishing here, like ritual washing with just taking a bath. But that's it. Seems like Simon Peter would have known that there's ritual cleaning and there's taking a bath. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a ritual reading that's possible. And, you know, going back to our conversation about priests in the Holy of Holies, like the key is to have clean feet and hands. And the rest of you presumably has already been bathed. And so I think one could read it that way. 
to say, no, this is not about like taking a bath. This is about like right. being ritually pure in the presence of the Holy of Holies. And I'm the one who's able to offer you that. And, th- and that is enough. I think it's possible to read it that way. There's clearly something going on here about not all of you are clean. And so yeah. there's there's something going on here about being clean means like being in proper relationship with Jesus, yeah. not having been deceived by the deceiver. Yeah. And so I think there's a metaphorical level on which this is working as well, which is then then it would be something like if you're truly my follower, then you don't need all of that other stuff. Like you've already got that part. Mm-hmm. What you then need is to allow me to do this thing for you because that's what remains. Mm-hmm. So being my follower is great, but this is like the ultimate expression of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking back to sort of the way that the term clean or pure or unclean or unpure are used sort of in the ritual world in the Hebrew Bible. And it is, it's not a moral state necessarily. It's just you are or are not in a condition where it is appropriate for you to come into whole, come into contact with, yeah. you know, holy spaces. And in the Hebrew Bible, there are, there are things that just happen over the course of one's life that will render you unclean for a period of time. And, and it's, it's kind of no big deal. Like you, there's, you know, you bathe, you wait a few days, you, you know, there are rituals that you do, and then you can come back into the community. So maybe it is taking this idea that like some of them are not clean and are so are not really shouldn't be in his presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems mm-hmm. like there's some of them for whom the foot washing isn't going to change anything. Right. Because there is something about them that is fundamentally not clean. Yeah. And you know, you, we know that Judas is in the room. Yeah. Which I want to ask you about that again in a minute. So Jesus, Judas is going to get his feet washed, and but that's not going to... Right. I think... It's not going to do anything. Not going to do it because he doesn't have the first step, which is to truly be clean in the presence of Jesus. Yeah. Okay, let's pick up what Jesus gives us an interpretation, which is... I know, it's so nice and clear. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So picking up in verse 12. After he washed the disciples' feet, Jesus put on his robes and returned to his place at the table. He said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you speak correctly because I am. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you too must wash each other's feet. I have given you an example. Just as I have done, you must also do. I assure you, servants aren't greater than their master, nor are those who are sent greater than the one who sent them. Since you know these things, you will be happy if you do them. Okay, so you said right before I read that, like, it's so clear. So I, I just like for you to put it out there, like, in your <laughs> Uh-oh, understanding. I should never say something is clear. Well, I think it is kind of clear. Like, I think there's things we can sort of tease, it, tease out, but I think the gist of it. I mean, I think Jesus is very clear that, like, this is an example of how you should all treat each other. And, like, if, if I can wash your feet then all the more so can you humble yourselves to watch wash one another's feet yeah and 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 like you know though that can just be sort of a symbolic thing in some ways that it is pretty power that's it's pretty powerful to like break down social norms through that act and I imagine it would ripple through in different ways yeah I love that so if you imagine a community that functions this way in which everyone is kneeling down to wash the feet of the other. Like that's pretty profound to think instead of functioning according to social hierarchies that say I'm better than you, instead 
I'm going to lift you up. And then you're going to do that for your neighbor. And then they're going to do that for me. Like it's this becomes this community of mutual uplifting. Yeah. So when I say things like that, then I wonder like, okay, in my role as a straight white American man, Mm -hmm. does that sound nice to me because of my social location? Like, is there a way in which humble yourself and lift up others? Like there's a, there is a way that can go horribly awry. Can you help me think about that at all? So are you thinking like telling someone, if someone is living in a position in society where they are constantly pushed down and, you know, yeah. taught to humble themselves and hu- in fact, humiliate themselves yes. to then tell that person you need to humble yourself yeah. is dangerous. That's exactly it. I need somebody to tell me to humble myself and lift somebody else up. But there are people like you're describing for whom that might not be. That might be bad advice. Yeah. 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 No, it really is. I think that's such a helpful comment, Bobby, because we have to remember, I mean, I guess the disciples weren't necessarily powerful people, but they were about to be. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and yeah, but I think the idea that we should live with humility in the sense of like, be aware of, how much space you take up in the world and how much you give versus how much you receive and all of those things yeah. that we can apply sort of across the board. But the specific advice given here is given to this group of, of people in their social context and what is about to be their social context. You know, this is, this is advice for them when he's gone, you know, when yeah. they will be powerful. So I, I think that's a really important point that we shouldn't apply this as though this is the this is the prescription that everybody needs. Yeah. I also think there's a way of, you know, so there's a way of doing this where everybody of their own free choice chooses to lift up other members of the community. Like mm-hmm. Jesus does not say, go stick out your feet so your <laughs> so your brother or sister can wash them. You know, like he's he's establishing not that I should expect that you would wash my feet, but that I should willingly want to wash yours. And so maybe that lead, you know, so the, if you'd leave some of the expectations, like Jesus clearly has some expectations, but maybe we should not have expectations of each other. I don't quite know. Because we do live in a world in which those hierarchies have been functional for a long time. So I think this ideal of we all lift each other up is a really lovely ideal, but it might take some work to get to a point where that is actually possible. You've got to build some trust and some, some other yeah. relationships. Now, Jesus has just sort of destabilized hierarchies. And then mm-hmm. he says, <laughs> by the way, servants aren't greater than their masters and nor are those who are sent greater than the ones who sent them. So maybe that sounds like hierarchy. What do you, what do you do with that bit of Jesus? I totally expected this to be reversed. I expected Jesus to say, masters are not greater than their servants. Yeah. Because we just got <laughs> yeah. this message in like dignity and humility. Yes. So what's, what you talking about Jesus? <laughs> yeah. Why is it reversed? Yeah. Are oh, you not going to answer me? Oh, no. I, <laughs> I <laughs> thought you were going to say it then, I thought. Uh, I mean, I do have other thoughts, but I want to hear what you think. Yeah. I don't know that I have a great answer for this one. Like one of the things that occurs to me is that if you let Jesus go around washing your feet, you might start to think that you are greater than Jesus. And if you start to think you're greater than Jesus, Mm -hmm. now we're in a world of trouble. 
Yeah. And I think there are people in the world who think, I don't know if they think they're greater than Jesus, but they sure think that they know the mind of Jesus and can act on his behalf in the world. Right. Yeah. And so don't go thinking that you're God. <laughs> like it might be mm-hmm. one way of reading this. Yep. The other th- thing that I was noticing as I read it was, it says servants aren't greater than their master. It doesn't say masters are greater than their servants, right? So one can read this as le- leveling, like nobody's greater than anybody. Mm-hmm. But it would make it would be a little clearer that way if if Jesus had said what you thought he was going to say and not what he actually said. Yeah. Which introduces some complication. Yeah, I mean, the, the other way I could read it is using this sort of uh, rabbinic logic form called the Calvachomer, like the, the light and the heavy. So yeah, if, yeah. We, if we say, if we think of the disciples here as the servants and the messengers and Jesus as the master and the one who sent them, then if Jesus can humble himself, that's the heavy, all the more so can the disciples do it. Mm-hmm. Which is just, which is just, re- it's not saying another thing. It's just restating yeah. what has already been said. So. I like that interpretation. Yeah, I like that. That that interpretation actually makes a lot of sense of it for me. So if you think you're too good to do this, like I just did it. Right. And you're, and not you're clearly not better me. than I am. <laughs> so if I can do this, how much more so can you do this? Yeah. I like that. That's really, actually, I think that's, that made sense of it for me. Little midrashic interpretation goes a long way. Sometimes the rabbis help, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they do. They do for sure. Okay, so I've got two more sort of, I don't know, they're maybe a little bit out of place questions. Great. One of them is I want to jump back to a verse I didn't talk about Mm. in uh, 13.7. Right after Peter has objected, Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand later. Now that we've come to the end of the story, I'm just curious what you make of that line and what are they going to understand and when are they, like, what's Jesus talking about, do you think? Right. No, that's, that's such a good question. Like, is the later, like, in five minutes when I explain this to you? Because usually when Jesus says later, it means after, after the resurrection. Yeah. So how would they understand this differently after the resurrection? The only thing that comes to my mind, and I don't even know if this is really historically true, (laughs) but is whether they would emerge into positions of power Mm. in a way that they hadn't inhabited before. But I am not at all sure about that. I really like that reading, if I understand what you're saying, is, you know, this whole time they've been following Jesus, and so they haven't really had to think that much about, well, what do I do if I'm the leader? Yeah. And so when Jesus is gone, then now they are in new positions in the community and you understand things differently when you're in charge. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. I also like that you're going to understand this in five minutes when I explain it to you. (laughs) Right. Like there's a reason for this. This is engaged learning and we'll process it together in just a minute. Okay, good. And then I think there's a step in between there, which is to say that the, you will understand this after the resurrection. Like, Mm -hmm. When the resurrection happens, you will understand this differently. And I think what Jesus is doing there is saying the crucifixion resurrection is just like this thing that we just did. This is like a introductory version of what's getting ready to happen in the crucifixion resurrection. 
So I'm willing to lower myself to wash your feet and lift you up. And you, Peter, you've got to accept that I'm going to do that for you or you don't get this thing. And then a week from, or 24 hours from now, I'm going to give up my life for you. Mm. Even though, you know, I'm greater than you or whatever, I'm going to give up my life for you. And you're going to have to come to terms with the fact that I did that. Mm. And when I'm resurrected, you're going to see like, oh, this thing that we did over here in the foot washing is preparing me to understand going from zero to crucifixion is too much for you. Mm -hmm. So here's a little step in the middle so that Mm. you can understand what we're doing. Does that make any sense? That That makes so much sense. I really like that, that it's sort of on the way to the, the ultimate humiliation. Yes. And it has me thinking, you know, I think this is maybe a common Jewish response to this story, but like that it's, it, it's so terrible. And like, we want, we want this not to have happened. Like Jesus should not yeah. have died in this way. Right. It is wrong. It is a bad, it's bad. This was bad. Right. And, and if you don't, if you don't believe in the resurrection after that, the story just ends with, yeah, mm-hmm. this was bad. Yes. And so this is a, this is a preparation in some way to endure that moment maybe. And I think that's important, Amy. And then, you know, when Jesus talks about his hour has come, that's usually understood as his crucifixion and resurrection, which are sort of inseparable mm-hmm. in the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. So you will understand what's happened in the foot washing after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. If you only, you won't understand it after the crucifixion. In fact, you might get a really messed up interpretation yeah. of what we ought to do for each other <laughs> mm-hmm. if you just stop at, at crucifixion. And so for a non-Christian reader, like that is a real challenge. Yeah. But this story reads differently than on the other side. On on Easter, you can read the story differently Mm -hmm. because now you see that this self-giving ultimately results in the, like the glorification of the whole community. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is the very next little bit of this text is going to be Judas leaving, which means Judas has been there this whole time. He's gotten his feet washed. He's heard this interpretation. He's done all the things. Do you make anything out of the presence of, like we we said at the beginning, like John made sure we remembered that Judas was there and that he was going to betray and that Jesus knew. And then do you make anything of the presence of Judas in this story about foot washing? I mean, the thought that is spinning around in my head right now is related to not, I mean, my first thought is like, what was Judas thinking? Like what was going on for Judas during this time? And I have no idea. Like I can't get into Judas's head. Yeah. But to think about the way in which our holiest moments are actually not in some kind of bubble. Like they're in the crazy messed up world where there's wickedness all around us. And there, you know, like there's, I don't know, like when we talk about Jesus as the the holy of holies, the holy of holies is like so set apart and controlled in terms of who has access to it. So the thought that, oh, I don't know. I just, as I was saying that, I felt the like intensity of the betrayal of having been there for that. And then, so I don't know. I I think I'm still, I'm, I'm processing. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's a big question. And I mean, I don't know that there is a great answer to it. To me, it says something about it's not our job when we're thinking about whose feet Mm -hmm. to wash. Mm -hmm. 
to be determining who is and is not on our team. Yeah. I really like it. And that. so we wash each other's feet and we lift each other up. And yeah, there are people who are going to betray you. Yeah. There were people who betrayed Jesus. He knew mm-hmm. he could have cast Judas out and been exactly right, but he but he didn't. And so I, to me, that's part of and it. Like that opens up a whole, like if you think about the practical implications of that, it opens up a whole complicated world of ambiguity too. Yeah. But I think something about leading with humility and service before mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. trying I to really like distinguish. that, Bobby. Yeah. I really like that. That we don't actually have to, we don't have to do that. That's a really hard job. It's an impossible job for humans yeah. to try to ascertain who who really is holy and who might secretly be, whatever. Like we don't have to do it. Yeah. Lift each other up. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right, Amy, I have enjoyed, as always, reading this text with you. I'm curious, as we're thinking about where this connects with the contemporary world and our lives today, what insights have you had? I am really struck by your comment that when, when you do this in church, people would always rather wash someone else's feet than have their own feet washed. And I don't know, just that the ways in which, especially if you are a person of certain means in our world, that you are used to controlling controlling things pretty well. And so if you agree to wash someone's feet, that's fine because you're in control and you can feel yeah. good about what you've done. You're a good person. You have chosen to give in this way. And but it's all you retain you retain the power in some way. And to accept from someone else asks for a certain vulnerability from us that a lot of us aren't, aren't used to giving. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm really, I'm going to sit with that for a while, the sort of dynamics of giving and receiving. And I mean, I know that in our community, when we're doing social justice work in the world, we try to be really mindful that it's not just a, we have stuff, so we're going to give you stuff and you're going to happily receive it. But instead that you know, we can both be transformed by each other and, and give what we have, whether it is stories or love or material or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it is hard. It's hard not to fall into that yeah. sort of patriarchal giving cycle. Yes, absolutely. And I love that, Amy. And, you know, that's part of what Mercy Church has tried to do. And it is mm-hmm. super complicated. And you have to, like, in my experience, you have to keep telling yourself every single day, yeah. like, this is what we value. We're going to disrupt the social hierarchies and we're going to lift each other up as human beings loved by God, mm-hmm. not treat each other according to our social roles. And if you don't remind yourself every single time, you slip back into it so mm-hmm. easily. Mm-hmm. So this thing that's happening here is really kind of a radical idea. Yes. That we need to disrupt these hierarchies and that's the essence of the kingdom of God. Yeah. I was really struck by what you said at the beginning about having loved his own who were in the world and that humanity of Jesus coming to be a part of humanity and that connection mm-hmm. that happens there, the word made flesh, God mm-hmm. in, in flesh incarnated. And now Jesus knows what it's like. He's God's one of us. And so it's not an action toward something other, but toward mm-hmm one's own. I really love that. And, you know, to me, that's connecting with the conversation we were having about ritual purification, which is not really one of the things I normally think about this text, Mm -hmm. but what we were talking about with 
you need one needs to be pure. One needs to have clean hands and feet mm-hmm. in order to come into the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the one in this text who is making that happen so that you can be in God's presence. Mm. And when you put those two things together, there is something happening in this text, which is God incarnate in Jesus Christ is making it possible for all of humanity to come into God's presence. Like he so wants to be in relationship with us Mm -hmm. that he does the thing that's necessary for us to be in God's presence. And so the only thing that's left for us to do is to be humble enough, or I don't even know if humble is the right word, is to allow God to do that for us, right? uh, You've got to receive this from me, Jesus says, or you can't be a part of this thing. Mm -hmm. So when you take those two ideas together, what you were saying about how how we're supposed to treat each other, and then the prior step, which is about how God treats us, like God does the thing that's necessary for us to be in community with God, we do the thing that's necessary for others to be in community with us. Like those two things together, it's just such a beautiful idea. And the fact that even the betrayer is there and is, a, and is we're not messing up the dynamic, right. <laughs> right? Right. By trying to decide who is and is not clean. We're just, God is doing the things for us that need to be done for us to be in, in, pre- in God's presence. We're doing the things for each other that make community possible. Like that, to me, that's just such a beautiful example of what of what the kingdom of heaven could be. I love that. It's a beautiful text. It is indeed. We are skipping in the narrative lectionary the entire rest of the farewell discourse and moving to the beginning of Jesus's trial mm. uh, next week in John chapter eighteen, verses twelve to twenty-seven. We're going to linger for a little while over the trial and crucifixion. Of Jesus a little earlier than we have in past narrative lectionary cycles. We're going to spend some time there. All right. Thanks for a good conversation, Bobby. See you next time. See you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll be discussing Peter's denial of Jesus in John 18, 12 to 27. Until then, keep on digging.